This is Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me on today's program in segments two and three is Mr. Peter Schiff. Peter is a regular commentator on many different television programs and radio programs about all things financial and economic. And uh, Peter will be joining us uh, in segments two and three on today's program. You know, today I want to talk to you a bit about a topic that if you have money invested in an IRA or 401k or you're planning for retirement, it's a topic that I believe you should certainly be familiar with, and yet it's a topic that is not often discussed. The topic is something that I'll call drawdown. And I'm talking about drawdown as it relates to an investment portfolio, like the money you might have invested in an IRA or 401k. Now, drawdown is a term that you may not have ever even heard. More commonly, the financial industry likes to tout average annual returns when they're talking about an investment or the performance of an investment. But drawdown really should be tantamount to any planning that you do. You should know what your drawdown risk is. Now, drawdown simply defined is the distance from the peak of an investment or the high of an investment to the trough or the low of an investment. So drawdown just simply takes a look at, in hindsight, where was the peak in price in this particular market? Where was the bottom? And the distance from the top to the bottom is drawdown. Now, in the last drawdown in the market, which was back in 2007-2008, the S&P 500 declined more than 50%. And here's why that is important. Because for every percentage drawdown you experience, the gain that you need subsequent to that drawdown has to be on a percentage basis larger than the percentage you experienced in a drawdown. And let me give you an example. If you experience a 50% drawdown in an investment, you need a 100% gain to get back to even. A 10% drawdown requires an 11% gain. And if you go back to 1929, when the Dow declined more than 90%, you needed a 900% gain to get back to where you were, and that took until 1954. Now, I believe that avoiding drawdown today, given the facts and circumstances that exist, has never been more important. In fact, the American dream of the last 80-plus years has been to work in a career that you found fulfilling and then hopefully retire comfortably with no stress. But that aspiration is quickly becoming a fantasy for many Americans for a number of reasons that we'll discuss. And avoiding drawdown for almost anyone is going to be vitally important to achieving that dream. Now, the website Zero Hedge is a market-focused blog that offers a wide variety of viewpoints and perspectives, and there was recently a piece published on Zero Hedge that talked about those who are of retirement age and approaching retirement age, and the facts tell us that many people of retirement age are not retiring. I'll give you just a bit from the article 
It says, forget about millennials working until they die. As we've repeatedly reported, there's a far more pressing retirement crisis gripping America. And it's the unprecedented number of contemporary workers of retirement age who are putting it off. Some are still reeling from losses during the financial crisis, and others have never had enough socked away to begin with and didn't start paying attention to their situation until it was too late. Now, if you are retiring today, the normal retirement age under which you can collect full Social Security benefits is age 66. And yet, many folks are working past the age of 66. Now, an organization called Provision Living commissioned a study to ask these people who are still working why they're still working. Why are you delaying retirement? As it turns out, the study found that seniors have decided to stay in the workforce after being eligible for Social Security for financial reasons. Now, there are some who claim they're working because they like to, that they're bored if they stay home, but 60% of those surveyed said that they're working because they need to work. Now, of those that are still working, 47% of those surveyed said, boy, I wish I was retired. Another 33% that said they were happy still working. Another 20% said they wouldn't mind working, but they sure would like to work fewer hours. Now, shockingly, the average retirement age savings, rather, the average retirement savings of seniors who are still working is a little over $133,000. Now, that's far less than the $2 million that many sources advocate. And, of course, I happen to believe that that number is different for everyone. But certainly we can all agree $133,000 once you reach retirement is not nearly enough. Now, when it comes to retirement income, an equal uh, percentage of respondents said they're relying on a 401k as pension-related payouts. So about half are saying they're relying on their 401k. Now, here's the point. If you haven't saved enough for retirement, or even if you have, you probably cannot afford to experience the kind of drawdown in your portfolio that you may have lived through during the financial crisis. And if you look at current stock charts and current stock valuations, drawdown is certainly a real possibility. But there is another retirement enemy of which you need to be aware and, and from which you need to protect yourself, and that is the devaluation of the currency. See, current policy response, as we've talked about here on RLA Radio, is money creation. Money creation saps the purchasing power of savings. Even if you've saved enough for retirement, it now seems to be inevitable that the currency will continue to buy less over time. So in addition to managing drawdown exposure, you also need to have inflation hedges in place to protect the purchasing power of your savings. And don't think that the cost of living adjustment paid by Social Security will keep up because it won't. It was announced this past week that current retirees receiving Social Security benefits will get a 1.6% cost of living adjustment in 2020. That's far from the real inflation rate. In fact, uh, we had John Williams, who ran the website Shadow Stats, 
Uh, and Mr. Williams said, if you calculate the inflation rate the way it was calculated pre-1980, the current inflation rate would be about 9.4%. So you've got a couple enemies that you need to guard yourself against. One, currency devaluation, and two, drawdown. And that's why we talk about using a two-bucket approach, and I'll be talking more about that two-bucket approach in the fourth segment of today's program. But I'd like to invite you to get some additional resources. We have one more event scheduled for this year. Uh, You can go to socialsecuritydinner.com to learn more about the details or to register. And you can also visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. On that website, we have many different resources available. Uh, The podcast of this radio program is available uh, each week. Uh, On that site, you can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter. That newsletter is delivered via email every Monday night at 5. The website, again, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. And to get more information about the event, it's socialsecuritydinner.com. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is Mr. Peter Schiff. Uh, Many of you uh, who are longtime listeners of the program recall that Peter is a returning guest from a couple years ago. Uh, Peter is uh, the founder of Euro-Pacific Capital. He is also a founder of Schiff Gold. Uh, You can learn more about both of those companies at europacificcapital.com and schiffgold.com. And he's got an excellent podcast called the Peter Schiff Podcast. And Peter, welcome to the program. Oh, well, thanks for welcoming me. And for the broker-dealer, it's europac.com, actually, is the website, E-U-R-O-P-A-C.com. Europac.com. My apologies. Yeah. Peter, let's yeah, jump in. Um, I saw a quote recently that you had made that uh, I think you said, what's crazier, negative interest rates or $5,000 an ounce gold, referring to your forecast that gold gets to $5,000 an ounce. Uh, is that still your forecast? And uh how how do you see this playing out? How long is it going to take to get there? Well, I, I think it's going to get there uh, relatively quickly once it really starts to move. Um, and, you know, right now we're on 1,500, so we've got a ways to go. But I think we're definitely going to get there. In fact, I think we're going to get quite a bit higher than 5,000. It's always hard to say exactly how much higher because it's really not the price of gold going up. It's simply the value of the dollar, the purchasing power of the dollar going down. And gold is simply reflecting that loss of purchasing power. And, you know, the the central banks, particularly, you know, the Fed, they're holding interest rates artificially low. And the reason they're doing that is because they've encouraged so much debt because they've lowered interest rates every time uh, the economy has been, you know, contracting. They just encourage us to take on ever increasing amounts of debt. Well, we now have so much debt thanks to the Fed that if they let interest rates go up, nobody can afford to repay it or nobody could afford to service it, including the federal government. So we'd have a much worse financial crisis than what we had in 08, and there'd be no bailout. So in order to you know, keep those forces at bay, you've got negative interest rates in some cases or 0% rates. But ultimately, uh, you know, the confidence is going to be lost in currency. I mean, if you can't get a positive rate of interest on your currency – um, why hold it? 
you know, prices are going up every year. And if you're not getting interest, you're losing value the longer you hold on to your, your cash. So people are going to start fleeing from it and they're going to start buying gold. I mean, uh, you know, gold at least, uh, state, you know, preserves its value. And, uh, so I think we're going to get a run on the dollar and, um, we're going to have uh, a huge increase in inflation, and you know, as the Fed continues to print money to maintain these artificially low rates. In fact, they've already gone back to quantitative easing, except they don't want to admit that they have. But that's exactly what they're doing. So, Peter, when you when you look at debt, I mean, the private sector debt levels are are higher now by at least the numbers I'm looking at than prior to the financial crisis. Uh, the government is even more broke. Um, how long is it going to take before we have a repeat of what we saw 10 years ago? Well, I don't think we're going to repeat it. I think we're going to have something much worse. Uh, but the question, you know, when is it going to happen to start? You know, there's no way to know for sure. But I do think that we're getting much closer because, you know, now that the Fed had to abort its feigned attempt to normalize interest rates, it aborted its feigned attempt to shrink its balance sheet. We're now back to rate cuts. Soon enough, we'll be back at zero. My guess is that by next year, we'll be back at zero. And um, the Fed is doing QE. I mean, again, they haven't admitted it, but they're doing it, and it's going to continue. And I think they're doing this because things are starting to implode. The the contraction, right, of the balance, or the quantitative tightening and the, the, the rate hikes that we've had have pricked the bubble. And as the air was coming out, the economy was going back into recession. In fact, manufacturing is already there. Uh, we're in recession, or the worst we've been since 2009. Retailing is in recession. Uh, so the Fed is trying to desperately fight back those forces. And uh, you know they're doing that by slashing rates and, and, and printing money and, and buying government debt. But you know I think it's not going to work. I don't think they're going to stop this recession from coming. But I think what they're doing is going to make it a whole lot worse. And it's going to throw... Uh, rising prices, consumer prices into the mix, which is going to really uh, exacerbate the severity of the downturn in the way it affects individuals and, and the economy. So, Peter, at what point, uh, as, as the Fed engages in QE, at what point uh, does the rest of the world just simply abandon the dollar? And are you seeing signs of that at this point? Um, well, not really yet, although the one sign is the strength of gold. So the price of gold has gone up uh, to above 1500 We went up to a six-year high near 1550 And the strength of gold is really indicating a weakness in the dollar. But you're not seeing that weakness yet relative to other foreign currencies. The dollar is still strong in foreign exchange markets. But it is weakening in terms of gold. And I think that preference for gold over dollars is really indicative of the fact that the dollar is losing its appeal. And what's really propping up the dollar right now is the fact that you do have negative rates in Europe and Japan. And uh, But I think when that comes to an end, which I do expect it to happen, and when rates start to rise uh, in the Eurozone and in Japan, that's when the dollar is really going to lose uh, what's left of its appeal. And when, Peter, when rates start to rise, I mean, when you look at the bond market and, uh, you know, we've got, $17 trillion of, of sovereign debt yielding negative rates. And, uh, you know, investors are, are buying these bonds, as I see it anyway, in, in the hopes that, you know, quantitative easing kicks back in worldwide and they sell these bonds at a big profit. I mean, don't we really have in the bond market what we had in the, in the, in the tech stock market almost 20 years ago? Oh, exactly. Only it's really worse because, you know, in the tech market, 
the dot-com bubble, or even more recently, a lot of these stocks that lose money, people were buying stocks in companies that were losing money, right? So they weren't actually proven to be viable businesses. But investors didn't really care that the companies were losing money and therefore didn't pay a dividend because they thought the price would go up and they would just sell out to another investor at a higher price. And so they were going to make money as the shares appreciated. Didn't matter if the company itself wasn't profitable and wasn't paying a dividend. But, you know, at least in theory, when somebody was buying a company that, you know, was a startup and been around for a few years and wasn't making any money, at least in theory, they may have made money in the future if they figured out how to, uh, you know, get their business more viable. Maybe after they grew their revenue, they can find a way to cut costs or raise prices and, and start generating consistent profits, and in which case the businesses would be viable. But when it comes to people buying, you know, negative-yielding bonds, there's no chance they can ever make money. If they hold the bond to maturity, they're guaranteed to lose money. That's where the negative yield comes from. Um, but obviously, if you buy a negative-yielding bond and then you sell that bond to somebody else at a higher price before it matures, well, you can make money. But that's because some greater fool came around and is willing to lose even more money than you were going to lose if he holds it to maturity. But ultimately, somebody has to hold that bond to maturity. That means somebody is the bag holder for all the guys that got out before maturity. But collectively, everybody who touches that bond between the date it's issued and the date it's matured needs to lose money. So if some people make money, that means some people must lose even more money. So this is a pure classic bubble. The greater fool theory, let me buy something that I know is going to lose money, but hopefully I can sell it to somebody else who doesn't know that at a higher price, right? Uh, so it's a, it's a pure bubble, and it's going to pop. And when it does, it's going to have very profound implications for uh, many economies, in particular the United States, because we're going to be hit hard by higher rates. And Peter, uh, you know, when you take somebody that is saving for retirement in a 401k or they've got their nest egg in an IRA and typically the the assets that are used are, are stock funds and bond funds, it seems like the, the you know we're, we're setting ourselves up for a, almost a simultaneous stock and bond market collapse. So what's your take on that assessment? Yeah, and we'll throw the U.S. dollar into the mix and it's the dollar that's really going to bring down the bond market, because that's what dollars are. I mean, bonds are their future obligations to pay dollars. And so if you own a bond, you're just going to get your dollars in the future. Well, if the dollar is really losing value, dollars in the future will have a lot less value than dollars in, in the present. But right now, if the stock market really started to tank, that might prop up the bond market a little bit as people kind of look for what they believe to be a safe haven. But if the bond market tanks, the stock market is going to follow it down, I mean, for sure, because higher interest rates are a big problem for, for, com for companies, especially companies that have a lot of debt. Well, if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Peter Schiff. Uh, Peter is the founder of Euro-Pacific Capital and Schiff Gold. I'd also encourage you to check out his podcast, the Peter Schiff Podcast. You know, uh, Peter, as we're, we're closing this segment here, just a couple minutes left, um, Alan Greenspan, uh, maybe about a month ago, came out and said, you know, negative is just a number. And, uh, you know, at this point, U.S. Go <laughs> US government bonds are, are are still yielding, you know, positive. I think the 30 years is just a little over 2%. Do you think that, 
you know, the long-term U.S. government bonds follow the rest of the world and eventually go negative? Is, is Greenspan right? And what about his statement that it's just a number? Well, I don't think it's just a number because it's, it's ridiculous that somebody would um, say that having my money in the future is um, more valuable than having the money today. I mean, that's what a negative interest rate. It's like, well, I can I, I can give you this money today or you can wait for a year and I'll give you a little bit less. I mean, that's the opposite of what's normal. I mean, normally when you defer something, you, you, you expect to get extra. That's the whole concept of interest. Okay, here's some money. If you don't take it today, if you wait a year, I'll give you a little extra. And now you're willing to wait the year. Okay, I'm going to delay. I'm not going to indulge myself right now. I'm going to wait, and then I'm going to get extra. I'm going to get paid. But if you're saying that, you know, I'm going to get less for waiting. I mean, why would anybody want to wait to get less, right? I mean, you're, you, know, you might as well take it right now. So the, it doesn't make any sense that interest rates would be negative. It's completely irrational. And, and generally, the higher people prefer to have something today, um, the, the higher the rate of interest is. I mean, you can think about it, you know, in terms of any other, other product. What if it's food? What if you're hungry? Um, you know, is, what, what, is it better to have the food now or, you know, in an hour or in a day or in a week, right? I mean, if you're really hungry, you want that food as soon as possible. And the longer you have to wait, I mean, the higher somebody might have to pay you to defer eating because you're going to have to be hungry for a longer period of time. So it, it makes no sense that, that rates are, are, are negative. But, of course, the, the, it's, it's not just about nominal negative rates. Rates could be negative in real terms and still be positive in nominal terms. And what's important when it comes to interest rates is the real rate, not the nominal rate. So let's say prices are rising by um, 5% a year, right? Every year, you know, price things cost 5% more. Let's say the interest rate that you can get for waiting a year is 3%. Well, but if the price goes up of the things I want to buy by 5%, but I only get 3% interest, I've actually lost 2% by waiting. So you still have a negative 2% real rate, even though there's a positive 3% rate. So I would say that in the U.S., when you look at a 10-year treasury that's yielding 1.5%, that's a negative yield because even if you use the CPI, which I think understates the actual increase in prices every year, the CPI is running a little bit north of 2% a year. So if you're getting 1.5% a year, you're getting negative uh, half a percent. So that's negative interest rates right there. And it's actually worse because if you buy a treasury, you still have to pay taxes, federal taxes, on the interest so your real rate is even more negative. So this whole thing is going to blow up because if the interest on the bond does not cover the cost of living and the taxes that you have to pay, then you're a loser. There's no point in lending anybody money. I mean, why lend somebody money if they're going to give you back less than they gave you? I mean, what's the point of making the loan? The whole point of making a loan is to earn interest. You're not making a loan to pay interest. <laughs> so this whole right. thing is upside down. But the fact that we have this, you know, this bizarre world, this is all a function of the end game here. The Fed has pushed the envelope to such an extreme that now we've gone, you know, from the absurd to the ridiculous. 
And this tells you that, you know, there's not much left before the crisis. I mean, they're at the end of their rope. They can't really go much further than this to keep this whole thing going. It's going to fall apart. The house of cards that they built is going to collapse. And that's why people need to do something about that personally to protect their wealth. Because most people who aren't protecting their wealth are going to watch their wealth vanish. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, uh, but the good news is Peter will be back for the next segment. I will talk to him uh, more about this topic when we return. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am Dennis Tubergen. I am chatting today with Peter Schiff. Peter is the founder of Euro-Pacific Capital and Schiff Gold. You can check it out at SchiffGold.com. I would also encourage you to uh, listen to his podcast, uh, the Peter Schiff Podcast. So, Peter, we're talking about the dollar and the dollar continually losing purchasing power as evidenced by the price of gold. As, as you look around the world um, and, and someone's listening to you, I mean, gold obviously is something that everybody should be holding, and we'll talk more about what your recommendations might be along those lines, but are there any healthy currencies? Are there is there anywhere someone can turn to maybe buy stocks or buy bonds in a, in a currency that looks promising? Well, you know, all of the world central banks have basically been making the same mistake. They've all bought into this nonsense that a strong currency is a bad thing, that a weak currency is a good thing, that uh, stable prices are bad, or you know, a falling cost of living is bad, that what you need is inflation, that the cost of living must go up by at least 2% a year. And so all central banks are endeavoring to reduce the value of their money every year to ensure that the population has an increase in their cost of living every year, which, of course, is the same thing as a decrease in your standard of living. So for some reason, central banks have decided that making everybody poorer makes everybody richer. I'm not really sure how they you know, figured that out, but that's what, they're, that's what they're thinking. And so you have all these central banks that are trying to create higher rates of inflation than they actually have. And and so the, all, none of the monetary policies are sound. But, of course, you know, a lot of the countries are in better shape on a relative basis than the United States. A lot of foreign central banks are not making as many mistakes. Their governments are not running uh, the, the size debts that our government is running. Or, in fact, the governments are still operating in surplus. And, and so I think when rates rise, as they ultimately will, because all these central banks are stoking the flyers of inflation, and as inflation starts to rage all around the world, a lot of these central banks will be able to respond by raising interest rates to try to put a lid on the inflation in their own countries. But the United States will not be able to do that because we have so much debt that allowing rates to go up to stop inflation will bankrupt many of the debtors and cause, you know, collapses in asset markets and bankruptcies and defaults, and even the federal government would have to default. So uh, I think that there are other currencies that are in much better shape. I mean, I don't think any currencies are going to gain against gold. So I think real money, uh, everybody needs to own some gold because gold is going to do the best. Uh, But, you know, there are 
dividend-paying stocks that we buy for clients in countries that are in relatively better shape than the United States and many other countries. And so for people who do have portfolios who want to get the better returns that you can get by investing in stocks and want to get higher dividends that stocks pay versus uh, the yields that you can get on bonds now, you know, we're, we're developing you know, income-producing stock portfolios, uh, value portfolios for our clients at Europe Pacific Capital to get you out of U.S. stocks and bonds and out of the dollar, but then it gets you into viable alternatives internationally that will provide you know, good long-term uh, gains as well as immediate income that will gain in value as the dollar falls. Peter, you know, there's uh, been a lot of attention over the past few years paid to cryptocurrencies. Uh, what's your take on cryptos, and do they have a place in, in someone's planning, in your opinion? Well, I think that, you know, cryptos, the whole concept was really born out of the frustration of the financial crisis and the fact that central banks were at zero and printing money. And I think a lot of investors maybe were frustrated that the price of gold really wasn't doing much. I mean, it went up from under 300 in uh, 2000, 2001, up to 1900 in 2011. But then it you know, began a, a pretty big pullback that lasted until uh, the end of 2015, where gold went back down to about 1,050. And then, of course, it was range-bound uh, between 1,050 and about 1,350 for five years until it finally broke out of that range this year, up to about 1,550. But you know, all of a sudden, you know, somebody came up with this idea of, hey, this digital currency, Bitcoin. And initially, you know, a lot of libertarians, free market guys were kind of attracted to it. It was kind of a novel thing. And, you know, Bitcoins were you can buy them for under a dollar initially. And then eventually they got to a dollar and they broke a dollar. They went up to 10 and then, you know, it was, you know, start trading around. But it wasn't until Bitcoin really, you know, surged up to a thousand dollars a few years ago. But all of a sudden it got on people's radars. And, uh, you know, they pulled back to two, three hundred after that big surge. But then, you know, some and money started to fl flow into it as kind of an alternative to uh, dollars or euros or yen. But the ultimate fatal flaw with Bitcoin and all these other cryptos, there's about 3000 cryptocurrencies that exist now. Uh, but Bitcoin is by far the most popular and it represents you know, more than half of the market cap. But the problem is that Bitcoin itself has no value. It has no intrinsic value. It has no utility. It's just a string of numbers. Uh, what gives it value is that people want it, you know, and, and, and there is a, a, a scarcity in effect that there's not an unlimited supply of them. There potentially is 21 million. I think right now maybe there's 18 or 19 million. I forget the exact supply. So if a lot of people want to buy it and people don't want to sell it, well, supply and demand is going to bid up the price. Uh, and that's true for any of the other cryptocurrencies. I mean, each one individual currency you know, whatever it has a limit to its supply, although some of them have much, you know, don't have as strict a limit as Bitcoin. But the problem is when people don't want Bitcoin, then the price is going to implode because the only reason people want it now is because they think it's going to go up because there's nothing else you can do with it, but hold it and hope that you can sell it to somebody else at a higher price. But once uh, the supply of people willing to pay higher prices is exhausted, and the people who own Bitcoin are just looking to cash out because, you know, they actually want to buy something. They've been hodling, you know, for years, holding on. And now they want to actually get out of their parents' basement and go buy, buy their own place or, you know, get a nicer car. You know, they have to start selling. And if there's no buyers, 
the market's going to collapse. Now, I know a lot of the true Bitcoin fanatics think that, no, 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 Bitcoin's just going to go up to a million or whatever. It's going to keep on rising forever until it replaces the dollar and the euro, and it's just going to exist as a currency. I mean, but th that's all a pipe dream. That's not going to happen. Uh, and they try to pretend that Bitcoin is like gold when, in fact, it's nothing like gold. I mean, it has replicated some of gold's properties that made it money. Like it's, 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 each Bitcoin is the same, just like each gold, an ounce of gold is the same. So it's fungible, it's divisible, it's transportable, it's durable. You know, it has all these characteristics that made gold better money than cattle you know, or oil or wheat or things like that. Because money had to be a commodity. It was a tradable commodity, the most liquid commodity. Uh, but gold as a commodity was more suited to be money than any of these other commodities. Well, the problem is Bitcoin is not a commodity because you can't do anything with it. There's no use for it, right? So it's not money in that sense, you know. And it's, you know, I know, and the Bitcoin guys try to say, well, you know, but the dollar and the euro, you know, they, they're not a commodity either. They don't have any intrinsic value, which is true, which is why they're fatally flawed and eventually they'll collapse. But in the short run, what keeps the dollar going is the tradition of use that Bitcoin doesn't have. I mean, nobody's ever used Bitcoin really as a medium of exchange. Um, prices are not in Bitcoin. I mean, you know, you know, you go and you go to the supermarket and you want to buy milk. It's not priced in Bitcoin. And, you know, people have a tradition of buying things with dollars. And so if milk was selling for $10, you'd know it's expensive and you wouldn't buy it. You know, uh, there's no, you know, you don't know. There's no, we don't know what's cheap and what's expensive in Bitcoin. There's no, uh, you know, contracts in Bitcoin. There's no Bitcoin bonds. There's no Bitcoin insurance policies. So there isn't a real, uh, you know, infrastructure in there, a tradition of use. But the other thing that gives the dollar value is the fact that it's legal tender and the U.S. government requires your taxes to be paid in dollars. Uh, so all the taxes that employers pay have to be paid in dollars. So they have to pay you wages in dollars because they have to withhold dollars and send them to the government. When you file your income tax at the end of the year, you got to pay dollars. So because there's this you know, legal requirement that we all have dollars, that we all collect dollars so that we can turn them over to the government, there's always a demand for dollars because people don't want to go to jail, so they want to pay their taxes. But there is no requirement that anybody own Bitcoin. Uh, there is, you know, so it's all a function of do people think it's going to go up? It's all uh, kind of like a, a, a pyramid scheme, a, a Ponzi scheme. It's like you're buying it because you think it's going to go up. And so eventually it's going to crash. So Bitcoin has no place in anybody's long-term portfolio. Whether or not somebody wants to gamble on Bitcoin uh, and buy it and sell it before it goes down. Depends on whether you like to gamble. I mean, there are people that buy lottery tickets. You know, if you ask me what place do lottery tickets have in people's portfolio, I'd say they don't have a place. They're, you know, you're throwing <laughs> money away. But that's but there are people who win the lottery. You know, but if they, yeah, but yeah, so you could you could buy Bitcoin if you want to gamble on it. But you know, I'd rather just buy silver. Because I think the, the upside potential is much greater in silver. I think the chances of silver going up tenfold are much greater than the chances of Bitcoin going up tenfold. And the chances of silver going to zero are basically zero. But the chances of Bitcoin going to zero are pretty high, especially if you have a long time horizon. Well, Peter, in about a minute and a half, that's what we have left here, talk about gold versus silver. What should somebody be looking at if they're looking to 
just hedge uh, their, their holdings against uh, dollar devaluation? Depends on how much money you have. You know, if you, you don't have that much money, you have a few thousand bucks, I'd go for silver. You know, I've got a company I work with, gold, uh, goldmoney.com, where, you know, just go there. You can open up an account and you can buy, you know, 50 bucks worth. But you can even buy 50 bucks worth of gold, too. And you can keep it, you know, on, you know, you have it on your smartphone uh, because you can sell it whenever you want. You can transfer it to other people if you want to use it as a medium of exchange. But I think there's more upside in silver. So I think that, you know, if I was just looking at making my first uh, precious metals, I would take a look at silver. But obviously, when you have more money, uh, you start to think about uh, storage and, and the volume. And, you know, gold, gold is a lot more uh, easy to manage because you can have a lot of value in a very small place. And I think silver is going to end up being a lot more volatile, too, uh, than gold. And there's probably more risk in silver, if I'm wrong. Uh, on the price going up. So, you know, I, I think people should own both and it just depends on their individual portfolio. But I think as you get more and more wealth and your main goal is wealth preservation, not wealth accumulation, then you want to get more and more gold. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Peter Schiff of Euro-Pacific Capital, also Schiff Gold. Uh, check out his podcast as well, the Peter Schiff Podcast. Peter, always a great interview. Thanks for uh, joining us today. We'd love to have you back. Okay, anytime. Take care. We'll be back after these words. This is RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Hey, I want to pick right up in the fourth segment of today's program where we left off in the first segment. And I want to talk to you a bit about the two-bucket approach. Now, the two-bucket approach has drawdown protections to avoid, to the best of your ability, participating in big market declines on at least some of your assets, but at the same time, having inflation hedges in place to protect against the declining purchasing power of the currency. Now, the two-bucket approach to managing assets is something that I've developed uh, over the years, really through experience, and there are five goals to managing assets using a two-bucket approach. One, you want to minimize fees associated with investments. Two, you want to limit or eliminate drawdown during a deflationary environment. Three, you want to hedge for the possibility of inflation. Four, you want to hedge for the possibility of a future fiat currency failure. And five, you want to achieve positive investment returns each year. Now, those are goals and objectives, certainly not guarantees. But the two-bucket approach is a simple, logical way to manage assets. While there is no perfect approach to managing assets, I believe the two-bucket approach is by far the superior method, particularly given our current set of economic facts and circumstances. Now, many people use a one-bucket approach to managing assets. And in a one-bucket approach, the advisor will tell you to put your assets in this bucket, and in this bucket there are stock assets and bond assets, and that can be good or it can be bad. The fewer the asset classes in a portfolio, the greater the probability of a terrific year as far as results are concerned. 
But because it has fewer asset classes, the one-bucket approach has the potential to outperform the two-bucket approach in a great year. But in a bad year, you can experience significantly negative returns. That's when the one-bucket approach fails. Given, as we talked about in the first segment of today's program, that stock valuations are near all-time highs, and given that $17 trillion of world sovereign debt is yielding negative interest rates, it certainly seems that the traditional asset classes of stocks and bonds are poised to decline. Now, as I said, the one-bucket approach tends to see big losses or big returns. And advocates of the one-bucket approach point to the big return years as reasons to use this approach. Now, if you are using the one-bucket approach to managing your assets and you're hoping for big returns, there is a chance that you're probably taking too much risk for your own individual circumstances. And certainly this is true the closer you get to retirement. And if that's you, you might be better served to learn more about a two-bucket approach, which is going to tend to give you more consistent, steady returns. Now, when you use a one-bucket approach, average annual returns are typically what is discussed, but what is often missing from that conversation is how that return was arrived at. See, one of the big factors that you have to be aware of is what is your drawdown risk? If you have a 50% decline in the value of stocks the same year as you retire, your retirement plan may be devastated out of the gate. Now, the two-bucket approach to managing assets has a very simple premise. You should divide your assets into two separate buckets of money. Bucket number one is your deflation hedge bucket. The deflation hedge bucket should contain the assets you need to meet your lifestyle needs during retirement. This is the bucket from which you'll draw your income. Bucket number two is your inflation hedge bucket, and it should contain the other assets. The deflation hedge bucket assets should be invested conservatively with the goal of achieving predictable, consistent returns and avoiding drawdown. This approach will serve an investor well in a deflationary environment, a consistent, predictable return without drawdown or minimizing drawdown risk will have the investments in the deflation bucket gain purchasing power in a deflationary environment. A quick example would be if you have money in cash rather than stocks and the stock market declines, You can now use your cash to buy more stock than you could have prior to the decline. Now, the assets in bucket number two should be invested to hedge against inflation. And strict exit strategies should be used when managing bucket two assets in order to protect from drawdown. Now, the assets in bucket number one are paper money assets. Paper money assets tend to gain purchasing power in a deflationary environment. And a deflationary environment is simply defined as a contraction of the money supply. When stocks decline, money disappears from the financial system. When real estate prices decline, money disappears from the financial system. That is a deflationary environment. 
Now, when it comes to the assets in bucket number two, at least some of the assets should be real, tangible assets that are not the liability of someone else. And that's a terrific question to ask yourself. Look at your portfolio. Look at your investments and ask yourself, what assets do I have? What assets do I own that are not the liability of someone else? See, if every asset you have in your portfolio is the liability of someone else, then your assets existing and being safe in the future require that the counterparty is creditworthy. Let's just take a look at the $17 trillion in bonds yielding negative rates. That simply cannot continue, and those bond prices will have to collapse. That's the greater fool theory, as we talked about with Peter Schiff. So my point is this. If you haven't taken a look at what your drawdown risk is, if you don't know what your internal fees are and what that translates to in terms of real dollars, I'd like to encourage you to attend our last educational event of the year. You can get more information at socialsecuritydinner.com. And you can also visit the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website. The web address is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. There are additional resources available there, including our free weekly newsletter called Portfolio Watch, in which we discuss these matters. I would encourage you to go check it out and subscribe. All we need is your email address, and you get one email a week, and we do not share your email address with anyone. That's our program for this week. Certainly hope you got something you can use, and I'll be back here with you again next week.